This is Rod Allen. And I'm John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guest is Sean Jin Wright, Professor of Education in the Africana Studies Department at San Francisco State University. And as of the fall, he will become a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We are in for a lively discussion. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So we're so excited to have Sean on. He's perhaps the leading scholar and practitioner in the United States when it comes to African-American youth development. And he is no ivory tower academic. He has founded and run several youth development organizations that have promoted leadership and social and political development and critical consciousness for thousands of adolescents over the years. He has a new book out, Four Pivots, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome. Hey, hey, glad to be here. What's up, Joe? Great to see you. Or do I call you Dr. Meta? Uh, you can <laughs> call me whatever, whatever you want, but let's just keep it, you know, colleague to colleague. So, all right. So I want to tell the listeners a little secret, which is sometimes when you read a book to do a podcast, you know, you read the way that some of Sean and my students perhaps sometimes read, which is, you know, enough to get by in the discussion. But this <laughs> book, I, I literally could not put it down. I found myself moving other commitments, ignoring things that I was supposed to be doing because I wanted to just keep reading. So when is the last time you said that about a social science book? <laughs> uh, four pivots. Congratulations, <laughs> Sean, on such a great and personal book. And also, please pass on congratulations to your wife and whoever else it was who pushed you to make the story a little more authentic and personal. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the sort of birth of the book. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joe. I mean, most of my career has been really, you know, sort of writing around educational issues in the communities from a lens of social science as an academic, you know, that's my hat. And my wife has never read any of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, maybe she would like read a little bit, but not, you know, she hasn't really read it. And so, when I started th- talking about, you know, a book that I wanted to write more focused on some of the deeper issues that I saw facing adults who were in the movement, I came up with an idea and we have this black kitchen table that we just kind of drink wine and talk. And I had given it to her and she shared it with another friend. And then they basically said, we wouldn't read this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they said. They wouldn't read this. And then they said something I thought was really cool because they said, what you need to write is what we talk about at this black kitchen table, right? Get a glass of wine and let's talk and just record. Like, that's what you should write. And I didn't really get it. And then I just kind of started to let go of some of the conventions that I've learned over the years about how to write in a particular way. And try to do the best I could around letting my voice kind of lead the way that I wanted to write. And it was kind of freeing. It was kind of fun, man, just to, you know, use words like damn. (laughs) Did you ever read uh, Charles Payne, So Much Reform, So Little Change? Yeah. I kind of felt like he went to a bar and, (laughs) you know, just told the truth and then wrote it down. Yeah. And, uh, the book is sort of so raw. I was like, you know, there's a lot, lot of truth in here. Yeah. So, Sean, was it just a change in how you sounded, like how, like the voice you used? Or was it also sort of in the content and the things that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think it was both because the things that I wanted to talk about around justice and change, it's not a conventional way we think about change and justice. It wasn't how I was trained. And so much of it was really trying to locate what I wanted to say in my own life, like the things that I wish I would have known when I was in my 20s, when I was in my 30s, about what this work is around justice and change. And, you know, as you read the book, you'll see that it's deeply personal. It was kind of like I wrote the book for myself, right? Mm. It was a deeply personal journey around the lessons that I've sort of accumulated over 
some really bad mistakes, some minor, but just trying to really be deeply reflective about what I think really matters for deeper transformative change. And I didn't have that space, man. I mean, I learned about justice and transformative change in college during the, I don't know if y'all remember the period of time in the late 80s, early 90s, when Black folks would walk around with the medallions and Spike Lee had come out and it was really the apartheid movement. And that that's really what I, how I cut my teeth in this work. And while effective and important, there were still things that I didn't learn about what matters in movement work. And that is the more introspective ways that we need to show up, ways that we need to heal, and the ways that we need to sort of explore our humanity in more profound ways. So that's kind of what I wrote about, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, one big, maybe sort of like the meta thesis of the book is that as we work outwardly on social problems, as we're change agents, social justice warriors, anti-racism activists, we also need to look inwardly at our own lives, who we're becoming, what kind of inner turmoil we are experiencing, whether we're centered and clear in our beings and ourselves and our spirits. Why do you think it's so important to look in as we work out? Well, let me respond to that in two ways. First, specifically for leaders of color, right? And that is, I have seen, Jal, really good community organizations that are doing good work around police reform, school reform, leaders of color in these organizations have a vision of the community that they want to create. And yet, and still, it wasn't enough. And as a result, these organizations turn in on each other. There's an in, you know, in battle and in fighting with each other. And, it, you know, there was just something fundamentally missing from the leadership of some of these organizations about how to lead, man. I mean, they understood very well about how to build a base. They understood very well about focusing in on, you know, the low-hanging fruit of political issues. But there was something fundamentally wrong about the the journey that they needed to take to become the leaders that they needed to be in times of internal conflict. And so the, my first response for that is that the external journey is necessary but insufficient. That is, the external journey about how I think about and engage in the tactical and mechanistic ways of thinking about justice around policy reform is definitely necessary. But it's also insufficient because as folks of color, we've also been wounded by these systems and that the wound of those systems are not just blocked opportunities, but it has eroded away our capacity to be even more powerful leaders. What is that wound? Those wounds are embarrassment over not having our fathers around. It's embarrassment or shame around being poor. It's not having the kind of models of leadership. There, there, I can go on and on and on, but the fact of the matter is, is that external organizing does nothing for my own healing and, and spiritual reconciliation. And so what I'm trying to argue in this book is that we have to do both, right? That That we have to think more broadly about structural change, but that's also about the transformation that we need within ourselves. Second point on that is that that was for leaders of color, but I also think that that's not just for leaders of color. I think where we are as a society, look at us right now, the kind of deep divisions we have in our society, the inability for us to even listen to one another is a result of a culture that celebrates dehumanization, right? And if we're not thinking more deeply about our own humanity and how we can make space to even listen to those that disagree, my, my sense is that we're headed down a really perilous path, right, as a country. And so the second thing is that the inter-journey, this inner journey gives us the fuel to allow for others to be human, right? Even if I disagree with you. And that for me is the only thing that will really save this democracy if I could see you as human, even if I disagree with you. I love how you use the word, Sean, reconciliation. 
sort of in terms of a personal reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, as well as a broader reconciliation in, in, in Canada. As I'm sure you know, a lot of conversation around reconciliation with First mm-hmm. Peoples and the horrible injustices that have happened to them over time through colonization mm-hmm. and the need to societally, if that's the word I'm looking for, uh, reconciliation at that level. But I'm glad you've put the point on it's also the personal reconciliation work that needs to happen, maybe even start there in inside. You can only transform yourself. Yeah. And how do we how do we engage in the transformation of a system or an institution or even a society without a focus on who we need to be to actually transform it? Right. I don't I don't get it. And so my own training has been about really focusing on the other stuff, right? Mm. And as you you may have read in the book, that brilliant interview that I did, Ben McBride, you know, talks about that this current version of ourselves, of ourselves as a collective, this current version, we can't actually create the society we want because we are, this current version doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's like, how do you see something that you've never seen, right? And so the, this internal journey gives us the permission to ask ourselves questions, to be in community with one another in ways that allows us to, to heal those wounds that come from those systems that have affected us. Can you give us an example of a practice or a group that you were working with where people started by treating each other more transactionally and we're able to, you know, maybe with the intervention of you or someone else, we're able to go deeper and talk in deeper and realer ways about what was affecting them and that helped them move forward. Yeah, I can give you a bunch of examples. Um, the one that comes to mind right now, because I just got off the phone with the group, <laughs> like like before this call, it's a community in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, it's a black community. And about four years ago, when we started, we came into the community because none of the community leaders could get along, right? There's a lot of battling over funding and they had their fiefdoms, right? And there was no collective vision of the black community. And we came in, we actually came, you know, when I came in, it was, it came in with a bunch of problems because they're like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and right, like, you don't know our community. And so that, that was a whole thing. But what we did is we listened, right? We sat with folks and we listened to them. And then we realized that the Black community leaders were themselves wounded. They were wounded because they didn't trust each other because of the funding stream. They were wounded because of all these reasons. And they, when we brought them together, they acted out of those wounds. So they couldn't really, they couldn't do anything together. It took us about a year and a half, and it was a process of really engaging in the four pivots, so much so that now they use the language on their own. And so we started off with mirror work and really explored the hurt that many of the leaders experienced. And we sat in circle, like it was literally, we sat in circle. And they was very difficult to hear people yelling at each other, crying, right? And And then we worked on possibility thinking because oftentimes what happened was the first thing that came out of those folks' mouths is we'll never be able to do that. We can't do that. We'll never do. And so using the practice of possibility thinking and we shifted some of the language that folks are using, it took us about a year and a half. And just recently, that collection of nonprofit leaders have been working together for about two and a half years and and has formed a collective that is organizing themselves around bringing resources and, and technical assistance to Black organizations in that community. And they're working together in really profound ways. And they're using the four pivots. They're struck. I always call it, you wrestle with the pivots. You don't just do them. It's a practice. That's a good example. I mean, you know, in the last few years or maybe the last 10 years or so, been, there's been a lot of interest in collective impact work. And, you know, this group... Someone wrote a paper in the Stanford Social Innovation Review labeling like, oh, there's this new thing. It's called collective impact. 
And I, you know, started to explore it and talk to people and work with people and try things and so on. And I was like, you know, this is just kind of like a fancy name for things need to move at the speed of trust. People need to know each other and get vulnerable. There's going to be a lot of difficult parts before there are good parts. And you all are sort of like packaging this like it's a four-step solution. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's just this very human process of people, you know, trying to find some common humanity and, you know, listen and work and so forth. So what you're saying really resonates with some shape to it. And oftentimes the first move in collective impact circles, at least my experience, is the what do we do thing? Like, what do we need to fix? And the relationships, yeah, we'll do that later. But it's actually the other way around. It's like, I have to trust you, know you, understand you so that I can actually go on a journey with you around changing things that really matter in our systems. My experience, Jal, has been the other way around. Like, let's figure out how to change this policy. But, you know, the people are still the same. I like how that process that you've described, Sean, and and in your book, you talk about it's more what you stand for than what you stand against. You need both those things. And what resonated for me is, you know, in, in our work in British Columbia over the last number of years with various groups to sort of get to a place that we could begin to transform the system, we had to build trust. Mm-hmm. And we had to do that by agreeing we're going to talk about and identify all the things that we agree on instead of identifying ourselves by all the ways that we are, that we differ. That took quite a while to get to that place of, you know, if we agree on 85% of the stuff, let's talk about those things 85% of the time, rather than the 15% of the things that we disagree on and, and trying to move to a positive relationship, positively focused one, rather than one that's focused on all, all the negative pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, you made it sound kind of simple. <laughs> we'll sit around in a circle and we'll talk for a while and we'll get it's more complicated than that or more complex than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, rather one thing that I realized that I've used this practice over and over again, you're right. It's not as simple as like, Hey, let's sit around a circle. Right. But one of the things that I start with is I, I understand that as a human beings, we have the same experiences. We experience fear, We experience insecurity. We experience embarrassment. We experience joy. Those things don't change. They don't change, right? They don't change. So the first thing we try to do just in terms of level setting is we try to create opportunities for people to collectively share that part of themselves. Just start with that. There was an activity that we do where we ask people to bring an object from their childhood or their background a watch, a newspaper clipping, a photograph, and tell us about why you brought that. And what that does is it opens up and allows us to to sort of see inside of someone's life in ways that we couldn't see just through their title. I'm the superintendent. I'm the principal. I remember someone brought, it was a sheet of paper, you know, from the hospital that said negative. Anyways, they were cancer-free after having... And we had no idea. And those kinds of opportunities, when I could see that you actually experienced fear and that I experienced fear, now I see you differently now. I may not totally know you, but I can I understand you. I actually trust you because you were actually vulnerable enough to share with me. And over time, when you create those kind of containers, it allows for that group to go in a, a more courageous direction. Without creating that container, it stays at the surface. That's my experience. Brad and I have had some similar experiences with the districts that we work with. We do something called Tree of Life, which I think does some similar things to what you just said. I'm going to briefly share a story that goes in the opposite direction. Uh, In my town, they were trying to choose a new superintendent and they hired an external search firm and the search firm came in And the first thing they did was they ran a bunch of focus groups for parents asking what they wanted from the new superintendent, or at least that's why it was advertised in the flyer. But when we got to the auditorium, to me, like a focus group means like eight people sitting in a circle with like some coffee and a little bit of food. But this was like 35, 40 people sitting in an auditorium, sort of spread out in the seats. You know, when people don't know each other very well, they don't sit too close to each other. 
And then they just asked from the stage, like, <laughs> what values do you want for your district? What do you think the biggest challenges are? What do you think the most important characteristics are? And by the end, we had, you know, someone saying, like, it's not challenging enough. And the lower performing kids are like bringing us down and they're taking up too much of our resources and so on. And we had a woman from Canada being like, from Canada, Rod, a woman from Canada saying, you're trying to ruin everything. You're just trying to make it worse. Your kids are going to be fine. And then they needed to choose a subset of those parents to join a, a search committee. And they decided that the person who had advocated very strongly for more challenge and less resources to the kids who are struggling uh, wouldn't be on the committee. And mm. then the people in that group then like sued the school district mm -hmm. for not being put on the committee. And mm -hmm. I thought this whole situation, I was just sort of running in my head. Like, what if we'd sat down in small groups? What if mm -hmm. we'd started with what are your hopes and dreams for your child? Like what challenges is your child facing that you're hoping the new superintendent will alleviate. And it turned out when we did have some of those one-on-one -on -one conversations, the guy who seemed the most furthest from the norm, his kid was really struggling in school. There was a lot of pain there and that's where it was coming from. But without any legitimate vehicle for that, it, it literally turned to like the absolute worst case scenario, which is they're suing the school and like, the, you know, techs are getting FOIA'd and all the rest of it. I think, Joe, that that element, why we you saw that in that particular district, is pervasive across our society. We see what's happening in schools around CRT in some states, right, where we recognize that there's an increasing division, there's an increasing intolerance, there's an increasing inability for people to sit with and listen, right? And it's like win or lose, right? And I just think that if we continue down this path, that we will not have the kind of ingredients that are necessary to create and maintain and sustain a healthy, strong democracy. And this is why I think particularly schools are the only place that we can actually set an agenda to revive our democracy. And this means that I think we have to really reimagine, I'm just saying this out loud for the first time, but like we have to really reimagine or rethink even the function and purpose of schools in this particular juncture in American history. Because if we're thinking of schools as the acquisition of skills for the future, for the job market, that we know that the type of jobs that are now available will not be there. But what will be is a collection of people in this place called America. And so if we begin to rethink about schools as a place to saturate young people with opportunities to reweave the features of democracy, which is about listening, talking, working things out, then we can begin to have a diff different kinds of conversations. And there's a hope for a, a different future. I just think that we have to really start using and thinking about these things that we call schools far out ahead of where we are currently looking, right? Your, that story yeah. reminds us or reminds me about like where we are as a society. It happened in that district, but I, you could find 10 other districts where the same thing is happening with CRT, for example, right now, right? There's so many examples of that. The actions that got us into this mess are, aren't the ones that are going to get us out of it, you know, or whatever that old quote is, right? Sort of the ways of thinking. And I don't think that's a uniquely American perspective. I, I think that's happening globally. We globally need our young people to think and act very differently, or we're not going to have a planet left. It's It seems pretty clear. But it's getting out of that deficit thinking of if, if your kid's going to get more, that means mine's going to get less, or there's going to be less for me if there's, you know, how yeah. do we start to move past this? Because I think that deficit thinking is pervasive in I don't want to say capitalism, but you know, pervasive in how we think about economies. It's pervasive in how we think about politics, increasingly pervasive in how we think politically around the world, that it's sort of a zero-sum game. So if we've all grown up with that, that's the water we're all swimming in. I know Joel's way younger, but you know, for an <laughs> old guy like me, how do we shift that way of thinking 
when we were sort of when we're swimming in that water. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know, we have to begin to think about this, you know, sort of collective well-being that, you know, investing in your community is somehow like I think the greatest example of this is what happened with COVID, man. Right. It was like, I don't know if people like looked at that lesson. Here's the lesson. First of all, COVID affected everyone. Those that were privileged, of course, were able to go to their vacation homes and sort of shelter in place in different ways. Yet, we also know that if we didn't have cities and communities that invested in supporting communities of color with their exposure to COVID, they didn't have the same spread. Right. So it had an effect on everyone. So my point is, is that if we begin to recognize that our investments in those that have the least actually has a benefit for the whole, right? We start to sort of weave away or remove this idea of a zero sum game. But the example of COVID to me is the most acute example because in places where the investments did not go to the least, right? In those places, we saw greater spread over the virus and it had an impact on everyone. And so this idea that if I win, you lose, I think that there's evidence and that there's ways that we can begin to understand that your well-being is intimately tied to mine. And a friend of mine said, if I'm sick, we sick. <laughs> if you're well, I'm well. And those investments have to be able to first focus on those that have the least, and that has a benefit for the whole. Now, your question, Rod, I don't know if I answered your question, man. Like, how do you do that, <laughs> right? I think still people have to see the benefit of those in those kinds of investments. I mean, I have a thought and a question. The thought is, Rod, an answer to your question is people live in lots of different waters. So like they simultaneously live in a capitalistic, xenophobic, racist society. And that teaches certain lessons about individualism. But they've also, they're part of families. They've been on teams. They've worked on projects. Like most people have some experience of working with some other people. And schools, as to your first point, Sean, a lot of those experiences will have come at some point in schools because that's the place where everybody goes. So I think people do have some other sort of traditions to tap into. And so we should try to build on some of those. Yeah. And I think, Joel, that they're at the same time, there's such a thick and deep us versus them culture that makes it easy for me to be with my team or my family. Right. And that's okay because that's the us. But it's not okay, right? That there's another group of people over there that I'm not, right? It's true that there people see the benefit of community, but oftentimes that can also lead to othering, right? And that othering ultimately then leads to polarization and polarization to then dehumanization. So you know, I don't have an easy answer to that, except there's a chapter in the book, man, where I'm really trying to practice what I preach. <laughs> and in this chapter, I was talking about really trying to gain perspective and listen. And I was telling my wife that on Facebook, I had a person I went to high school with who was a self-proclaimed white supremacist or self-proclaimed white nationalist. Vicious trash. <laughs> that he put on Facebook and I blocked him. And she said, you should interview him for your book. <laughs> and I thought she was, you know, she was, she always says stuff like that, but I actually, she called my attention to it. She said, that would be a perfect example. I'm like, I can't do that. And so I, I reached out to him. I said, Hey John, I'm writing a book. You know, my politics, I know yours. You want to you want to be interviewed for my book? And he said, hell yeah. And so we we went down that road and um, I write about the experience of what it was really tough. But Joel, there were some moments in there where he shared how he struggled as a human being about the almost near death of his daughter. He was almost in tears, bruh. Okay. And in that moment and in that sharing, I 
disagree with everything he said, the racist stuff that he said, but I, I had empathy for his story and him and his wife almost losing their daughter. Now, that's not a kumbaya moment. I'm not saying it's a kumbaya moment. But what I am saying is that how do we create more spaces where we can just begin to open up the possibility for someone to be human with us that we disagree with? And I'm not sure what that looks like. But from my vantage point, if we're not able to do that, we're, we're actually detangling our democracy. We're actually creating greater divisions in our society that ultimately will, will not be good for any of us. Even in our love, trust, and pixie dust Canadian way. What? What did you say? <laughs> in, our, in our love, trust, and pixie dust. Love, love trust. <laughs> um, can, Canadian way, we so often, you know, we struggle to identify our our own identity. But one thing we're all clear on, we know who we're not. We're not American. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which I'm not saying that with, with pride, but it just speaks to your point, right? Like we just so often identify by who we're not rather than by who we are. And, and the reason we do that is because we struggle, I think, in Canada trying to figure out who are we? Like, what is it about us that, what are the ties that bind other than, you know, universal health care and hockey? Like, there's got to be more to it than that. So, Sean, let me ask you a, a hard question about this. I mean, it's one thing to say people who are xenophobic or anti-LBGTQ or you know, want to send immigrants back to Mexico or whatever it is, like to say those folks are being dehumanizing and that's poisonous to our world. And I think a lot of people from the center to the left would agree with that. But you're also saying, at least you could read what you're saying is like, you know, I'm talking to my black brothers and sisters in the activism world and... I know that the police have systematically and historically been awful to us, but at some level, like if we don't, yes, they need to change, but we also need to understand a little bit at least of what their lived experience is like. Is that right? Because I could certainly imagine a lot no, of folks. Uh, not entirely, not entirely. And I'm glad you brought this up. What I'm saying is, let's use that, that example. Police terrorism in Black communities. The unjustified, you know, terror of Black babies and children, right? on the, At the hands of police. What this does to folks, I'm, I'm going to just speak for me. I don't want to talk about Black community. What that does to me and, and my experience and those I've organized with, that consistent and persistent exposure to that terror makes you full of rage, anger, hatred, right, of the police force. And that comes out, and I carry that. And so when I want that change, it is a fury, a justified fury at a change of a dehumanized system. It's a justified because of the terror. But what I'm suggesting is if we're not aware and conscious of that rage and anger, it turns in on us and it turns in on each other. What happens is, is we become the very thing we detest. We become terror. We've digested the hatred, right? And so we can't actually create, we can't even see what needs to happen with policing because all we want to do is stop the damn terror, which is important. But stopping the terror is not the same as reimagining public safety. Stopping the terror is not the same as saturating Black babies and communities with well-being. And so what I'm suggesting is not that we have to understand the police, but what we have to do is understand what terror has done to our own spiritual and psychological well-being. And that if we're not aware of that, that we, we actually becomes unhealthy for us and our movements because we then become the movement that is fueled only by rage and not by vision, is fueled only by hate and not by love, is fueled by only by the destruction of something and not the reimagining the creation of something else. That's what I'm going to say. That's what I wanted to say. 
And then you also talk about body cameras so that, yes, Mm -hmm. we want structural reforms to the police, which might include body cameras. But what we really want is shift of hearts and minds. Like we want people who are wearing police uniforms to uh, understand that kind of terror that they're engaging in and yeah you know a lot of that comes from a process of othering on the part of police folks yeah joe i just i don't know man i'm i wrote that and i continue to struggle with that it's just that i'm trying to push people to to move beyond surface solutions man right and yes like we need body cams i'm not suggesting that the immediate response to the terror that we experience in schools and communities is not necessary. Like we need that. But I sense that there's sometimes such a satisfaction with that as well, as if now that every police officer in New York city or Chicago or Boston has a, we're done. Right. And I just feel like sometimes we, we don't ask the deeper question about why we need body cams in the first place. Body cams is just a metaphor for surface solutions, right? Necessary, important, urgent, not unimportant, but incomplete, y'all, right? Incomplete. And so if 90% of our time is responding urgently to those kind of, I call them above the iceberg surface solutions, which is important, and only 20% is asking the questions about why the hell we need them in the first place, if it seems to me to be upside down, you know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to get people to wrestle with. Not that there's an easy answer to that, but without wrestling with that question, I feel like we, we continue to move and invest in solutions that will appease the root of the problem and not solve it. (laughs) So it sounds like you're saying, we keep focusing on improving the current system, which you need to do. Body cams would be an improvement, but it, those improvements are still existing in the in the current paradigm. But we also need to spend at least as much time, if not more, transforming to something else. Absolutely. Uh, that improvement isn't enough. It needs to be transformational. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not sufficient. Yeah. It's like, how do we actually then work with I think I even talk about this in the book, right? It's like, how do we work with a humanizing force? How do we get officers to see Black people as human beings? How do we do that? How do we even wrestle with that? How do we even ask ourselves a question? Hmm. And so that to me is a a more difficult question. (laughs) A deeper question. Yeah, it's a deeper, difficult question that I don't know if the community that y'all moves in and the, the high school you went to and the, the folks you grew up with, when they come over to Dorchester, what did they get from the way they grew up to see Black folks as, you know, in a, in a way that's not healthy? What can we put in that pathway so that when, you know, your homies that you grew up with, and I'm just picking on you, y'all, because I don't know where the hell you grew up, but <laughs> I'm just saying, you could have grew up in Dorchester. I was all, <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe I'm just blabbing here. All right, I'm, I'm going to give our, our guest a chance to catch his breath because he's been laying some deep knowledge on us. Uh, and I'm going to ask Rod a question, building on something from Sean's book. Sean talks a lot about clarity at a like deep personal level. Like, do you know what you're about, what you're for? Have life's events and just the sort of like, hustle of daily life and the need to complete lots of different tasks sort of pulled you away from what that sort of central core is. So Rod, can you tell us a little bit about your kind of core, whether you were able to sort of stick with it through your career as an educator? Was there ever a time that you felt sort of knocked off of your uh, equilibrium? How does that relate to sort of trying to build some coherence in a system or with other people? Well, that's a question. (laughs) Yeah. 
I did my teacher training here in Victoria, Southern Vancouver Island, and and I did my practicums at two lovely little elementary schools where everything was, you know, flower gardens and bumblebees. It was it was great. Then I went north to begin teaching, and by Thanksgiving, which is earlier for us than it is for you, by Thanksgiving weekend, I was ready to quit because I was just completely and utterly unprepared for what I was experiencing in the classroom. It was an Indigenous community, Indigenous students who could give a crap about my title or that I was, you know, I had a teacher certificate. That makes me important, doesn't it? And to them, it was about who are you as a human being? Are you worthy of our time? Are you going to be here for the long term or the short term? Do you really care about us? It was all, so much of it was relational. And I struggle with that because I thought that lots of things were getting in the way. Curriculum, I've got to cover stuff. I've got to do all these things and and I can't. And how are we going to get through grade eight and all these crazy colonial ideas? And had a little chat with myself and, and kind of went a different direction. There's always time for the important work, which is relational, which is you know, learning needs to be relevant and and so on and so on. So that sort of started me on that pathway. I don't think my fundamental ideas about teaching and learning and kids and my role in that and how we'd like our systems to be have really shifted a ton from that place. I've learned a bunch along the way, for sure. Have I been knocked off my equilibrium? Sometimes it feels like you're on a bit of a super highway and you can move real fast. And sometimes you're on the long and windy road and you just got to take your time to get there because those, you know, that's the cards you've been dealt just to mix a whole bunch of metaphors into that sentence. But no, I think sort of that North Star that we talk about hasn't really shifted. It's been around equity. Uh, my language has improved over the years in terms of how I can talk about those things. I understand now that there is a huge movement out there. I used to think it was just me that was crazy and didn't fit in. Now I know there's a whole bunch of crazy people that don't fit in and want to really change and transform things. So I think the clarity has always been there, but I think it's clearer now and I can talk about it more coherently. Not that that was a coherent ramble that I just did, but I can articulate it in better terms and I understand systems way better and I'm, I think my impact can be broader through systems work, not just about me as a classroom practitioner on how I fit into a school. I'm not sure if that answered your questions, but I think that clarity piece is absolutely right. And Sean, you talk about clarity at the level of the soul. And I think that's where that happens. That's the walk on Thanksgiving weekend in the woods going, am I going to do this or am I going to go home? Like I, mm. I, I need to figure this out. But it was at the soul level, not at the tactical or practitioner level. Mm -hmm. Conviction. Yeah. And it's going to be really hard. And it's going to, and you know, so that's not the easy road to take, but it's the, but it's the right one. It's going to be really hard. You're going to bang your head against a lot of walls, but it's the right work. Yeah. I think that's where my experience is. That's where clarity comes is when you're most confused and you have shit all over the place <laughs> right it, it's like that's the conviction it's it's not a, like a decision cognitively it's like you're it's something that comes from much deeper place that that this will not ever happen on my watch or this is what i'm gonna do or this is who i am or and i don't care about the damn consequences because this is what i'm gonna do that level of clarity for me at least comes at places when it's almost like the gift of confusion and, and all this stuff that forces you to get clear as opposed to kind of like just continue your life, you know, kind of moving around without being forced to make a damn decision about something, you know? And I, and Jal, I'm going to flip this question back at you too, but it, I think that's that clarity is often confused with courage because I think with clarity and that deep understanding, it's not a matter of courage. Do I do X or Y? It's just obvious. Like a, like, is there a choice? Uh, I, of course I have to go here. As opposed to it being seen as a courageous move, it isn't necessarily at all. It's just, well, that's what I have to do. Yep. Joel, how about you? What Where's that clarity piece sit with you? Well, we've been talking a lot about the professional, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about the personal. A few years ago, I was having a, a third kid and... Uh, 
you you were present while there was a third child. Yes, yes, being had. yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and we didn't suspend the laws of biology. No. And um, I just felt very overwhelmed. Theo turned out to be a wonderful and very easygoing person, but I didn't know that at the time. And I just, you know, teach, research, students, other children, coaching, deeper learning dozen, parents. There's a lot going on in a lot of different directions. And so I went to see a therapist and I said, you know, I feel like I'm at the center of this web and all of these uh, different folks, you know, I, I signed up for all of these things and I, I love each of them individually, but the sum total of them, like, I feel like I'm like in the middle of a spider web and the legs are pulling out in different directions. And uh, the therapist said, after a couple of sessions, he said, you know, you're a newly tenured professor. I've heard a lot about what people want from you, but I haven't heard much about what you want. And he's like, I'd like you to consider the idea that your life going forward doesn't have to be exactly the way that your life was before. You you can choose to make it that way if you want to, but you could also choose to make it quite different if you so chose. And yeah. I was like, man, like this is a worthwhile use of money. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is a, that's why they call them therapists. Huh? I wasn't even sure I believed in therapy up till he said that. I was like, I known people who went to therapy. I thought, uh, oh, you didn't really change that much, etc. And it was just really freeing. It was just sort of like, okay, like, what am I doing? Which of these things am I doing? Do I actually want to be doing? Why do I want to be doing them? How does it connect to my sort of overall life purpose? What what makes me happy? And so, you know, I think listeners have heard a bunch about the coaching over the last few years. I really love coaching, it turns out. So more of that and less of something else. Like, okay, that means in the winter, I'm not flying to here or there to give a talk or whatever. Rather be with my group of, you know, nine, fifth and sixth graders during the winter. So I think at that level, just sort of remembering that like the world isn't just acting on you, you get to act on the world has been really helpful to me. Mm. How about you, Sean? Have you had moments where you sort of felt thrown off of your center? Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, I think similarly, I mean, there was a period in my life that's very similar to yours, Joel. Um, when my son was born, he was colicky. He required a lot of care. I was completing my dissertation at UC Berkeley. My wife wasn't working, so all the bills were on me. We had just kind of bought, you know, this house and we're trying to, it was a lot of pressures just, and I woke up one night just sobbing, right? Just literally like the pressure had gotten so intense. I just started sobbing and didn't know where it was coming from. And I think it was at that moment where I was like, wow, something has got to change. Oh, and I was, I was the executive director of an organization that I founded too. So I was raising money for them, for that work. And so it was like a moment. It was a night. My wife woke up. She saw me crying and sobbing. What's wrong? She was scared. I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going on. I have a mentor that that I talked to. And in a similar way, it wasn't more about what I wanted. The first clarity came for what I didn't want. It was just, I can't go through this anymore. That was the clarity that this thing that I'm going through right now is done. <laughs> It was done. I was not going to go back to the stress, the worry, all that kind of stuff. And so that level of I'm never going to experience this again helped me get clear about what I wanted to do. But it started with that night of just sobbing, man, and knowing this is not something that I want to ever experience again. And having a conversation with my mentor got me some clarity, the second about a clarity, but which is like, how do I want to spend my time? The question that they gave me is, how are you intentional about keeping your peace of mind? Mm -hmm. like, how are you intentional about keeping your peace of mind? And I was like, woof, <laughs> like you, that's a good question. Like wow. peace of mind, is that something that we actually can be intentional about making sure I keep? Is that right? a thing I can have? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's something that I keep with me all the time. Like my peace of mind is the most important because without that, I'm just on a treadmill. I'm not useful to my family. I'm not useful to my work. And so that 
space to keep peace of mind. And there are micro things that I might do. I exercise in the morning, you know, take walks when spring is almost here. So I can't wait to get out in my garden. Right. So there's just little things that disrupt and disconnect me from the, you know, monotony and the frenzy of a day or a week, you know. What's all this talk about inner clarity doing in a book about, you know, social justice and that sort of thing? <laughs> I mean, part of the consequence of justice work, systems change, is almost singular focus on an issue or a topic or a problem without clarity about who you are and why. And I've seen it over and over again, where organizers commit themselves to a topic or issue, um, whether it be police violence or whatever, and yet and still their family is in shambles. Their partners are getting ready to divorce them, or that's just one, or their health, their physical health is at the brink. Why? Because I got to go to the meeting. I got to set up the meeting. I got to organize. I got to come with the agenda. I got to fight for, I got to do this thing so much so that I have sacrificed my own health. So why is clarity important? And clarity is important because it allows for folks to have a different set of eyes about what's important for yourself and your family. Right. And for me, that level of clarity came from my own, you know, my own story. But I think that my experience is sometimes that clarity doesn't come at all. And like, I've lost people in this work. They're not here with us anymore because we didn't give them permission to get clarity. We didn't give them the spaciousness to take care of themselves. We didn't give them the space to say, look, man, I love the work that you're doing, but look at your family. They're not talking to you. Like that's real talk. So, that is why I put that in there as a central feature in 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 this work around our, these four pivots. Sean, as we're having this conversation in the news, is yet another school shooting in two thousand and two thousand and one. I was in graduate school, and we wrote a book on rampage school shootings, mm-hmm. and here we are, twenty two years later. Same things, same patterns, same discourse about NRA, can't yep. do anything. Reading this book right now about like 10 days in the Obama presidency, about when he went to sing Amazing Grace in South Carolina. And, mm. you know, so I'm imagining you see a lot of connections between, you know, those acts and also the way that we respond to them and the kinds of things that we've been talking about. So floor is yours. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say on that. My vision is that we put school shootings and that type of violence in a museum, meaning that 50 years from now, children will go, dad, what, what is this thing called a school shooting? Well, son or daughter, it used to be that children would walk into school or adults would walk into school and they would shoot and kill each other. And that was a, we couldn't solve that. But now we've, you know, we put it in a museum. That's my vision, right? In order to get to that, we can't continue to do the same thing we're doing, which is we lock in into an ideology about the solution. And then that is the solution. Hey, the solution is gun control. Hey, the solution is mental health. Hey, maybe the solution is both. But whatever it is, we haven't yet grappled with and have the courage to ask a different question because it's almost become a normalized, man. This is, I'm, I don't want to get too upset here. You can this do is so fucking ridiculous that it's become normalized that children can be shot in the sanctuary of a school. And so now we witnessed it and we just shake our heads like, oh, this didn't happen. So, whew, man, this is a, this has been, you know, simmering with me. 
our leaders, I think, have a greater responsibility. And I'm not even talking about government, man. Like, I don't know. We have a greater responsibility to ask a different kind of question. If it becomes normalized, and you know this, Rod and Giles, you know that it shouldn't be that we have shooter drills in schools. <laughs> shooter drills in schools, as if this is, I remember going to school, we had earthquake drills. Hmm. There's earthquake, get on the desk, tuck and cover, blah, blah, blah. But not shooter drills. So my, so I don't know, Joel. I'm just kind of talking here, man. But in order for us to get to that museum, what is it going to take from school leadership, from educational leadership, from political leadership to have a different conversation? And I don't have the answer to that, but that's something that I want to, you know, when I leave this earth, I want to be able to at least contribute something to that conversation. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yep. What are your thoughts about that? I love the idea of a museum. Sometimes people ask me about all sorts of controversies that are happening right now, and I'm just sort of like, when historians look back, they're going to think it was strange that like the options were only A or B. Like for a long time in the first two decades, it was like these Kip or like no excuses schools and. You know, the people on one side are like, they're like prisons. And the people on the other side are like, but the kids go to college. And I'm like, at some point, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, we, our whole debate was about these like one type of schools that felt like prisons and sent some kids to college as if that's like the only thing we could think of to do with young people. So I love that vision. And I also agree with you that we got to unlock it somehow. It can't just be the same sort of back and forth. Or like, are we just resigned to the fact that this is just who we're going to be as a society? And that's what we accept. This is who we are now as a society. We could just accept that and, you know, be like, okay, our children can be at risk all the time around. And it's not just, you know, you know, recently it's been school shootings, but it's been happening in black and brown communities, right? But, you know, is this, is, is this who we're becoming? And is this who we are? And are we okay with it? You know? That normalization, we sort of become numb to it. And, you know, the fact that the United States, the number one cause of death now of young people is firearms. How was that not on a headline forever at the, on the front page of the New York Times? Like, I don't know why that isn't screaming out there. I think partly because we become normalized to it and the news cycle moves on and we, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. On that note, let's move to the lightning round. Lightning round. Sean, you have given us so many thoughtful, deep, introspective answers. We're not going to encourage that anymore. <laughs> okay. We are going to encourage <laughs> some shoot from the hip or shoot from the lip kinds of answers to three questions in the lightning round. Sean. Do you embrace innovation and change in your personal life? Are you an early adopter or a late adopter of new things? Now we're talking at home, in your leisure hours. I, I think I'm a late adopter. Yeah, I'm not going to stand in Apple's computer lines for the new thing that they created. I want, you know, I'm a late adopter. Usually when I take on something like the Oculus, right? My son showed me an Oculus and I thought, Ooh, that's cool. Right. So they had been out for a while. I just got one. So yeah. <laughs> I'm a late adopter. All right. Nice. nice. Uh, me too. You know, someone showed me that it really works before. I'm gonna... uh, okay. What's a uh, food or experience you'll miss uh, in moving to the East coast? Oh, you just got to do that. I don't know, but I don't know if you guys, I don't know if Boston has authentic Mexican food like the border here in California, like San Diego, like fish tacos and refried beans and rice and hot salsa. I will definitely miss that. I, when I was in grad school, I had a friend who'd spent a lot of time in Mexico and he said, you can get good Mexican food here. It'll cost you 50 bucks, 20 bucks. <laughs> To bus to New York, 10 for the food and 20 to bus back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
my my wife is looking forward to good seafood. I guess you know. Yes, hey, there's the trade off. So yeah. it's a trade off. Chowder burrito, yeah. <laughs> Sean, what's one book or a podcast other than this one, or a movie or something else that's spurring your thinking right now? Uh, you know, I'm listening to Trista Tippett's On Being. Just you know, really provocative ideas about spirituality and change. Yeah, I'm listening to different podcasts around that. I'm reading a book right now called The Persuaders. And then I'm also listening, of course, to Brene Brown's podcast as well. Mm. Yeah. Nice. All right. Sean, thank you. We could do this all day, but I, I feel like we should let the band rest. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been interesting and fun and intriguing and i'm leaving with more questions that i came in with so a lot of material to think about yeah thanks sean me too I've, i have so many questions I've, I've just raised you up on my list of people i need to go have a beer with soon to talk through some more of this stuff so thank you for that i like beer <laughs> all right boston has lots of good beer this is rod allen and this is john Meda. and this is free range humans a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guest has been Sean Ginwright. Sean, thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners. Cheers, all. <laughs>